I don't want to be the bad guy anymore. You can't mess with the program, Ralph. You're not going turbo, are you? Turbo? No, I'm not going turbo. Come on, guys. Is a turbo to want a friend? Or a medal? Or a piece of pie every once in a while? Is a turbo to want more out of life? Yes. Ralph, Ralph, we get it. But we can't change who we are. And the sooner you accept that, the better off your game and your life will be. Hey, one game at a time, Ralph. Now let's close out with the bad guy affirmation. I am bad, and that's good. I will never be good, and that's not bad. There's no one I'd rather be than me. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Welcome to Bubble Diorama, episode 207, Wreck-It Ralph. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, welcome to Bubble Diorama, whether you're a brand new listener, whether you're a regular returning listener or an irregular returning listener. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for choosing to listen to this podcast. I know there's a lot of movie podcasts out there. And I know this because I listen to a lot of them myself. And so thank you so much for being here. I'm so happy to have you here for the history of legacy of Wreck-It Ralph. A movie that's a long time coming to this podcast, especially considering my canonical love of Disney and my canonical history of playing video games ever since I was a child. This movie basically has the verbal diorama name written all over it. And I'm so excited to be talking about it in this episode. But before I start, I just want to say thank you for the amazing reception to the most recent previous episodes of the podcast. So I've done episodes on Hustlers and also Bring It On as well. And last month, I focused on women in film, specifically movies talking about depictions of female class, privilege, representation, historical whitewashing and cultural appropriation, as well as women behind the camera and how tough it can be for them to get those movies made in the first place. The other episodes that I released last month are Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and Hidden Figures. Please watch all of those movies. Please listen to those episodes. I did specifically choose those movies to talk about those topics and the episodes have been really well received. So I'm really, really happy with the reception to those episodes. But these are movies that really everyone should see. And moving on to this week's episode, again, a movie that everyone should see, I do animation season every year, and this movie just missed out on a spot at the start of the year. And I never wanted animation season to just be the place that animated movies end up, and then there's no sign of them for the rest of the year. And it just seemed like the ideal time to talk about Wreck-It Ralph, and hopefully I don't wreck this episode. Here's a trailer for Wreck-It Ralph. My name's Wreck-It Ralph. 30 years I've been doing this. I can fix it! It's hard to love your job when no one else seems to like you for doing it. 
You're just the bad guy who wrecks the building. Ah! <gasps> I'm okay. I'm okay. If I'm really honest with myself, it sure must be nice being the good guy. Ralph, you are bad guy. But this does not mean you're bad guy. I don't want to be the bad guy anymore. Ralph abandoned his game. Welcome to Game Central Station. Bad guy coming! Everything changes now. Where's Ralph? Oh, sorry, Cubert. It's me, Ralph. Ralph's gone to hero's duty? Fear is a four-letter word, ladies. You want to go pee-pee in your big boy slacks? Keep it to yourself. Hi, mister. You're not from here, are you? Sugar Rush? You're game jumping? Hey! Aha! You wouldn't hit a guy with glasses, would you? Aha! You hit a guy with glasses. That's... that's well played. Without Ralph, we're doomed. They're gonna pull our plug. What's that? A medal. I earned it in Hero's Duty. <laughs> Not that kind of duty. I bet you really gotta watch where you step in a game called Hero's Duty. <laughs> Some nights I stay up cashing in my bed. We can't change who we are. You can't mess with the program, Ralph. <laughs> Some nights I win. Everyone here says I'm just a mistake. You ready for this? What do I stand for? Not leaving you here alone. Well, let's close out with the bad guy affirmation. I am bad. Ah! And that's, that's good. good. I, I will never be good. good. Oh, no, 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 no. And that's, that's not bad. Hold that thought. There's, There's no one I'd rather be than me. Why do I fix everything I touch? It's make your mama's proud time. I love my mama. Oh, good. The cops. Hold still. Ow. Take that. What are you doing? One game at a time, Ralph. Ralph is a video game villain who is tired of always being the bad guy. He decides to leave his game, Fixit Felix Jr., in search of a medal that will prove he's a hero and not just a bad guy. Ralph travels to different video game worlds, including Heroes Duty, where he meets Sergeant Calhoun and Sugar Rush, where he encounters Vanellope von Schweetz, a young glitch who wants to race. As Ralph tries to earn his medal, he inadvertently causes chaos and puts Vanellope's chance of racing in jeopardy. He must team up with her and fix the damage he's done before it's too late. In the end, Ralph learns the true meaning of heroism and the importance of being himself. Let's quickly run through the cast of this movie. We have John C. Riley as Ralph, Sarah Silverman as Vanellope von Schweetz, Jack McBrayer as Phoenix, Jane Lynch as Sergeant Calhoun, Alan Tudyk as King Candy, Mindy Kaling as Taffeta Muttonfudge, Joe Lotruglio as Markowski, Ed O'Neill as Stan Litwack, and Dennis Haysbert as General Hologram. There are many, many cameos in this movie as well. We have video game characters Tapper, Sonic the Hedgehog, Ryu, Ken, M. Bison, Zangief, Clyde, Bowser and Universe, Lara Croft and Mario are mentioned but don't show up on screen and this is despite Lara Croft never actually being available in arcades until 2018. So the question remains, how do they know who Lara Croft is? But anyway, Wreck-It Ralph has a screenplay by Phil Johnston and Jennifer Lee, story by Rich Moore, Phil Johnston and Jim Reardon and was directed by Rich Moore. 
And it's appropriate that the idea of an animated movie featuring a video game character as the protagonist stretches back to the early days of video game medium. While simple electronic games were developed in the early 1950s, the development of games started to gain traction in the 1960s with the advent of basic and C high-level programming languages and Unix in the 1970s. Unix created a common programming environment which meant people could share their code between themselves and magazines and guides were published encouraging and teaching others to code. Text-based RPGs became popular in the late 70s and took advantage of the limited graphical ability of most computers, but the arcade video game industry, notably Atari's Pong in 1972, led to commercially successful arcade video games like Space Invaders, Galaxian and Asteroids. This era is referred to as the golden age of arcade video games from the late 1970s to the early 1980s a period of rapid growth and technological enhancement. Computers were evolving with more power and were becoming cheaper, and arcades transitioned from black and white games to colour and evolved from simple shooting and flying games to driving games like Pole Position and Turbo, not that Turbo, and early character platform action games like Frogger, Pac-Man and Donkey Kong. Due to the many copies of well-liked games that filled arcades, the emergence of home video game consoles, and the moral panic regarding the impact of arcades and video games on children, the golden age of arcade games started to fade in 1983. Both of these declines, which negatively impacted the North American video game industry revenues for a number of years, happened around the same time as the video game collapse of 1983, but for quite different reasons. Early in the 1990s, there was a revival of the arcade game market, particularly with the launch of fighting games, but the idea for an animated movie about a video game character was in the pipeline at Disney as early as the late 1980s. Even the way various iterations each time it was pitched to Disney, it started out as high score in the late 1980s and became Joe Jump in the 1990s. Joe Jump, which is an actual game nowadays, was the brainchild of Sam Levine. Joe Jump was storyboarded as a forgotten 8-bit video game character trying to make his way into the modern world. But when John Lasseter joined Disney, a review of ongoing projects began and Joe Jump wasn't deemed Disney enough. But Lasseter kept Levine and his writer working on the project for another year. Joe Jump would basically languish in Disney purgatory, not good enough to green light, but not awful enough to cancel outright for years until 2008, when Disney decided to respawn <laughs> the project into Reboot Ralph. But even before it became Reboot Ralph, it was very different to what we now know it to be. Fix-It Felix Jr. was the main character in the original draft of what would become Reboot Ralph, aka Wreck-It Ralph. Felix worked for the family fixing business and was due to take over the business from his father, Fix-It Felix Sr. He wanted to form his own path in life and go against his coding, so he set out to demonstrate his independence and his ability to stand up to his relatives. The antagonist of the story was Wendell Grubble, a large troll-like creature that talked in grunts and frequently flung rubbish at Felix, a bit like Donkey Kong from the original Donkey Kong game. The development team realised after a few months that the antagonist of a video game would be a considerably more intriguing character to follow since his programming would be much less kind to him. He would have more of a journey to go on and because in the world they were building, his would be a vital but largely thankless job. Wendell morphed into Ralph, and his personality began to take shape, even if his design still resembled Donkey Kong more than the Wreck-It Ralph we are all familiar with. 
Felix's role wasn't significantly reduced when Ralph took the lead first. The two travelled around the arcade together for a large portion of the second act. Later on, they would form a trio with Vanellope von Schweetz. But in the end, the relationship that developed between Ralph and Vanellope on their own was considered to be more compelling, and it paved the way for a supporting story in which Felix and Sergeant Calhoun run into peril while in search of Ralph. While in original drafts, more worlds were developed for Ralph to visit, including a Sims slash Grand Theft Auto style open sandbox world called Extreme Easy Living 2. The production team decided to limit it to three distinct worlds accessible via an extension cable. Fix-It Felix Jr. would be a classic 8-bit style arcade game referencing games like Donkey Kong and Rampage, heavily focused on a traditional 8-bit blocky design. Heroes Duty, a first-person shooter based on Call of Duty and Halo, with high-definition graphics and muted tones, and Sugar Rush, a bright, vibrant, candy-coloured world with various racing levels, inspired by the work of Spanish architect Anthony Gaudi, and also clearly inspired by the work of Shigeru Miyamoto's Mario Kart. The creative team behind the movie was able to create characters who looked like they came from their respective worlds, from Sergeant Calhoun, who appeared to be hyper-realistic, to Ralph, who had an angular and cartoonish appearance. The numerous design styles and concepts were merged into the many worlds by assigning various art directors to each one. Additionally, each character's movement was customised by the animators. The soldiers in Heroes Duty move as realistically as they would in a contemporary first-person shooter game, but the Nicelanders move rather blockily like they would in an 8-bit game from 30 years ago. At the helm of Reboot Ralph was two-time Emmy award-winning Futurama and The Simpsons veteran Rich Moore and producer Clark Spencer. Moore was one of the original three directors of The Simpsons, directing many episodes of the series' first five seasons before becoming supervising director of The Critic and later oversaw the creative development and production of Matt Groening's Futurama. His credits included the Warner Brothers theatrical short Duck Dodgers, Attack the Drones, Comedy Central's Drawn Together and Spy vs. Spy for Mad TV. Moore had also previously been involved in the Disney Story Trust, working on Bolt, The Princess and the Frog, Tangled, that's episode 198 of this podcast, and Winnie the Pooh. As a teenager, he'd grown up in arcades playing Pac-Man and Dig Dug. His favourite game of all time was Dragon's Lair, which you'll notice does make a cameo in this movie. His parents would tell him he was wasting his time at arcades, but parents, what do they know? He was invited to join Walt Disney Animation Studios personally by John Lasseter in 2008 and suggested more develop a story set in the world of video games. Not only was he now working at one of the greatest animation studios in the world, he could funnel his passion for video games into an actual movie. Clark Spencer joined Disney in 1990 as senior business planner in the finance and planning department, eventually becoming senior vice president of finance and operations for Walt Disney Animation Studios and theatrical productions, position he held until 1999 when he was asked to produce Lilo and Stitch. Since then, he'd served as executive producer on Meet the Robinsons, producer on Bolt, and executive producer on Winnie the Pooh. And there have been previous attempts to build movies around video games, notably Tron and The Wizard, neither of which were really successful in capturing the essence of the video game world. For four years, Moore and his team spent hours upon hours playing the games that would influence Wreck-It Ralph. Lasseter gave more free reign on the project to tell his own story of a game character who goes against his own code, and while the characters of Ralph, Felix, Vanellope and Calhoun would be brand new, in order to legitimise the world they were in, they needed to licence actual video game characters. 
Now, this is something I've talked about before in both the episodes on Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Toy Story, and especially in Toy Story, how difficult it was to get certain characters licensed. That's why we didn't actually end up with Barbie. But for Wreck-It Ralph, not only did they need iconic characters, they also needed narrative reason to be there and not just glorified cameos. They didn't write the story to specifically include certain characters, but they wrote the story and then realised it would be great to get a few legendary bad guys in the bad and on meeting. So for a year, they continued as if they had permission from every company for every character they wanted. The production team compiled a list of all of the famous characters, including the likes of Bowser, Zangief, Dr. Robotnik, Kano, although not called Kano in the movie for Mortal Kombat is for mature audiences and this is a Disney movie type reasons. But they didn't want Disney's lawyers to meet Nintendo's lawyers. They wanted to make it personal. So they went to E3, the trade event for the video game industry, and they met with all of these video game companies like Nintendo, Sega, Capcom, etc. and told them about the project and that they wanted their characters to be involved. Most of the companies were very game, excuse the pun, for their characters to be included, especially when they were told that the production wanted them to be authentic, true to the characters, and that each company could have final say on the designs. And most importantly, at this point, no one turned them down, unlike what the team at Toy Story had experienced. Nintendo were remarkably easy to work with, considering them incredibly precious of depictions of their characters, especially Mario. While the team tried to fit Mario into the movie, they couldn't find the perfect way to put him in the film where it felt totally organic and where it served the story and also served the character of Mario in the eyes of Nintendo. And so he's mentioned in name only. Bowser was the key character they wanted because how could you have a group of legendary bad guys without him? Nintendo insisted on approving his animations, how he would hold a coffee cup, how he would laugh and spit out coffee. But when it came to Bowser with the other characters, there was a bit of a problem because Nintendo would say that Bowser was much bigger than M. Bison. And then Capcom would say M. Bison and Zangie, they're much bigger than Dr. Robotnik. And Sega would say, well, Robotnik is a very tall gentleman. So rather than end up with a room of giants, a compromise was made. And they've all thought of the same size, but clearly those characters. The only bad and on member who is not traditionally a bad guy is Zangief. According to writer Phil Johnston, he created Zangief as a villain in the movie because as a child, he was unable to beat Zangief and believed that Zangief would feel regret for how challenging it was for players to defeat him. In total, over 180 video game characters appear in Wreck-It Ralph, mostly in Game Central Station, and this at the time was the most individual characters ever in a Disney movie. For the designs of the movie characters, originally Ralph and Felix were going to look like 8-bit characters as well as move like them. You'll notice the Nicelanders move in a very blocky, jerky way, as well as look fairly angular. It was decided to make Ralph and Felix look and move differently, mostly because they were the main characters of the game and therefore moved more in-game, but also to get the audience to empathise and relate to the characters was easier when they moved normally. In addition to the characters, there are literally hundreds of references to practically every game you could think of, from graffiti in Game Central Station to random props and set pieces and name drops in conversation. And it's one of those things that if you notice something and it means something to you, then you all enjoy it, such as the graffiti in the station. But if you don't play the games, it's literally just graffiti in a train station. Even the Konami code gets a referential shout out in this movie. But before they did any animation, they had to get a cast assembled. And Richmore always had an idea of who he wanted for Ralph. 
someone who'd notoriously turned down animated projects before, not because he didn't want to do animation, but because the voice actors in animation often had no say in their characters, or the script would offer little to no improvisation, and often the premise would change between recording the lines and the actual finished product. And this was an actor who could easily do dramatic roles, but also is one of the funniest comedic actors working in Hollywood, so Moore took a punt and contacted John C. Riley. Riley was hesitant at first, but Moore assured him this wasn't just a typical Disney movie, that they'd given him free reign, and he wanted to give Riley the same. They would basically do anything to accommodate John C. Riley and make him comfortable enough to accept the role of Ralph, because in Moore's mind, Riley was Ralph. And not only did Riley commit, he committed hard. He was involved in script development, acting out for the writers how he felt Ralph would react in certain situations. They did a huge Q&A session together. Riley was intimately involved with the production pretty much from the offset, and the core team really were dedicated to make Wreck-It Ralph an intimate, honest, and fun little movie. And when it came to recording sessions, it was Riley who wanted to record with the other actors, something that rarely happens in animation. Improvisation was encouraged with Riley using the quote-unquote Will Ferrell model. He'd worked with Ferrell on Talladega Nights and Step Brothers, and in those projects it was a comedy democracy where the funniest line in the moment would win out. And they also had the freedom to either use the material as written or they would ad-lib. There are some R-rated lines from Wreck-It Ralph, particularly from Sarah Silverman, who's known for her more racy comedy style. But I can't see Disney ever letting those particular lines see the light of day. Silverman, for her part, was flown to Pixar for a table read after being sent the script, and she loved it immediately. She was involved for two years as the writing team worked on making Vanellope look and act more like Silverman. She and Riley worked together on every scene, Typically, Sarah Silverman is a Disney princess now. Half the film takes place within Sugar Rush, mostly because Vanellope can't leave the game. They researched actual sweet factories, contacted noted food photographers, and they explained how to make food look good. Actual dioramas made of different sweets were created to describe how Sugar Rush might look. And these dioramas were in display at Disney Studios for a time, but they've probably been removed now. And you can't have a Disney animated movie without. Alan Tudyk, one of my favourite actors. I simply love that man so much. He has amazing arms. He based the voice of King Candy on Ed Wynn, a popular comedian whose career began in the 1930s. Wynn voiced the Mad Hatter in Disney's version of Alice in Wonderland, and that in particular served as a reference point for King Candy. This was Alan Tudyk's first toy voicing a character in a Disney animated movie, and he's done it for everyone ever since. He's now classed as Disney's good luck charm. Additionally, Roger Craig Smith and Kyle Hebert reprised their roles from the Sonic and Street Fighter video games, respectively, playing Sonic and Ryan. All the other voices for all the other characters were done by new people. What sets Wreck-It Ralph apart from its other Disney animated stablemates and links it to some others isn't its focus on princess stories, but its technological innovations. Disney are no strangers to innovating. They invented the multi-plane camera in the 1930s, giving films like Snow White and Bambi an unheard level of visual depth. They developed CAPS, Computer Animation Production System, in the 1990s as a groundbreaking digital upgrade to the analog multiplane system, allowing the integration of CG elements into intricate scenes for the first time. Disney first used Deep Canvas with the release of Tarzan in 1999, allowing the viewer to navigate around a digital painting and for the character to surf through trees. And I've spoken about all of those new technologies in previous episodes of this podcast. 
Wreck-It Ralph, though, brought about bidirectional reflectance distribution functions with more realistic reflections on surfaces and a new virtual cinematography camera capture system. For the first time, cameras could travel within virtual environments and provide artists with ideal camera placements, setups, shots, visualization and placement and interaction of visual elements in a scene. Exactly how you might move and set up a camera in the real world. It's basically a virtual camera rig that goes through scenes in real time. Despite not being the first studio to use virtual production technologies and techniques, Disney stands out because of their pipeline integration. There was no need to shift assets into separate capture systems within a separate pipeline, which would then need reintegrating the data into the primary production system. The camera capture technology was completely integrated into the studio's production workflow. The capturing system was developed by them within their current pipeline and is based on their shared Maya framework. As a result, they had access to all of the resources and scene building tools used in their typical scenes and shots. Wreck-It Ralph made heavy use of the capture system in both subtle and overt ways. One game that uses the technique more overtly is Hero's Duty. It uses a rougher, more handheld first-person point of view. Different scenes are given life and excitement by adding shaking and motion to the camera using the capture system. Just like in a first-person shooter, they can put a director virtually into a set, they can look 360 degrees in every direction, and get a sense of the scale and placement of everything within the scene and plan the shots. You just hand them the device and watch them visualise the scene. While the technology was used primarily on Heroes Duty, Disney was planning to use the system on forthcoming projects too, but I haven't actually found any proof that they have used it on any future projects. That doesn't necessarily mean they haven't, it just means that the information just simply isn't out there. But Wreck-It Ralph was the ideal movie to debut a technology like this. Exactly the same as Wreck-It Ralph was the perfect movie to debut a video game character. And speaking of video game characters, this is an awful segue, but just go with me. It's time to move on to the obligatory Keanu reference of this episode. And if you don't know what that is, it's where I try and link the movie that I'm featuring with the one and only Mr. Keanu Reeves. and. This one was so super easy because Keanu starred with Luigi Mario himself, John Leguizamo, in John Wick. Luigi doesn't appear in Wreck-It Ralph, but his brother Mario is mentioned, so technically the worlds are linked. And to be honest, I have seen the new Super Mario Brothers movie and it is really fun, but there's something about that 1993 Super Mario Brothers movie with John Leguizamo as Luigi Mario and Bob Hoskins, obviously, as Mario Mario. I just adore that movie so much. And it really is the perfect way to link Keanu to this movie. One of the most important things when you're talking about video game development, you obviously need to have great characters. You obviously need to have wonderful playability and ideally as few bugs as possible. But you also need to have great music. And one of the best things about most iconic video games is the music. An 8-bit orchestra was used to tailor the score for Wreck-It Ralph. The score was written and composed by Henry Jackman. And the soundtrack featured songs by Owl City, AKB48, Buckner and Garcia, Skrillex, Noisier, Cordon the Gang and Rihanna. An animated version of Skrillex is shown on screen DJing the 30th anniversary party. In an interview with the Los Angeles Times, Jackman recalled that before getting into video game music, he purchased a vintage Donkey Kong arcade game, which he would end up dismantling later. He said, quote, I wanted to check the original Nanco chips from 1984 to see what the frequency response was. These machines weren't capable of making frequencies higher than such and such a note. They weren't able to play more than three sounds at once. 
I didn't want anyone to be able to go, but that sound couldn't have been played in those days. The film is pretty accurate, unquote. And those are the levels that Henry Jackman goes when he's creating a score for a movie based on a video game. And we have a question for you all. So have you ever wondered what became of Garland Hulse, the 12-year-old Fixit Phoenix champion? Well, let me tell you, when Kent Zaborski broke his world record a few weeks later, Hulse's meteoric rise to stardom was cut short. You obviously don't wonder what became of Garland Hulse because Garland Hulse and Kent Zaborski don't exist. But it was actually a genius marketing ploy. Wreck-It Ralph director Rich Moore discovered that the former child star had slowly declined over the past 30 years and um, juggles various jobs to support his mother. And this is in a King of Kong-style documentary called Garland Hulse, Where Potential Lives, which follows Hulse's decision to retake his record-breaking crown for the Fix-It Felix Junior High School. The 28-minute documentary was created to promote the home media release of Wreck-It Ralph and unfortunately seems to have been removed from YouTube now. And Disney returned to E3 in 2012, not to scout for characters this time, but to promote Wreck-It Ralph with an arcade version of Fix-It Felix Jr. There were also browser and mobile versions of the game, but sadly it appears they've since been removed from Disney's official website. There is a version that's quote-unquote playable at kbhgames.com. I will link to it in the show notes, although I couldn't actually get it to work. And I don't know if that was maybe my keyboard, maybe I didn't have the correct keys. I was just trying to use left and right, but it is a pretty faithful adaptation of the game that we see on screen. Wreck-It Ralph was originally due to be released in March 2013, but after Pixar pushed the release of Monsters University from November 2012 to June 2013, a spot opened for Ralph, which was actually ahead of schedule at the time. And when it was released, it wrecked to the competition, which to be honest was only Flight and the Man with the Iron Fists, when it was released on the 2nd of November 2012, opening at number one at the box office, the largest opening for a Walt Disney Animation Studios film at the time, and grossed $60.6 million in his first week. The next week, though, James Bond took aim at the spot and Ralph acquiesced to the majesty of the Secret Intelligence Service as Skyfall was released and Ralph fell to number two. Wreck-It Ralph's release was accompanied by the traditionally 2D animated Disney short, Paper Man, Paper Man, which would go on to win the Best Animated Short Film at the 85th Academy Awards. On a $165 million budget, Wreck-It Ralph would gross $189.4 million domestically in the US, $281.8 million internationally for a total worldwide gross of $471.2 million. It is critically acclaimed, and it was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature, the same time, actually, as The Pirates in an Adventure with Scientists, that's episode 192 of this podcast, both lost out, though, to Pixar's Brave. And Brave is a movie that I'm not the biggest fan of, actually. And it's ironic, really, because Brave actually seems like more of a Disney movie, and Wreck-It Ralph seems like more of a Pixar movie. Paranorman and Frankenweenie were also up for the award that year. Wreck-It Ralph would receive nine Annie Award nominations. It won five, including Best Animated Feature. It was also up for the Golden Globe for Best Animated Feature, but it lost again to Brave. And when it came to sequels, Ralph Breaks the Internet, which I still maintain should have been called Ralph Wrecks the Internet, came out in 2018. And the internet finally comes to Litwax Arcade. And Ralph and Vanellope travel the internet to find a replacement steering wheel for Sugar Rush. It did better than the first movie financially, but honestly, 
I don't like it quite as much. And I've not managed to put my finger on why the Disney princess scene is great, though. Right, let's move on to some social media thoughts. I like to ask across social media what people think of the movies that I feature. And we're going to start with the patrons. And we're going to start with Scott. Now, Scott is actually kind of the reason this episode exists. Because Scott and I were talking. And Scott mentioned about Wreck-It Ralph. And I was just like, right, I'm going to do an episode on Wreck-It Ralph. He didn't ask for the episode. But it was just, he put the idea in my mind. So thank you for doing that, Scott. And Scott says... An absolute gem. I love this movie for so many different reasons. The Easter eggs and callbacks, catnip for an Asian gamer. It's very funny, clever, all the voice casts are impeccable, and it just has bags and bags of heart. It was also one of my favourite films to watch with my daughter, and when Ralph says, if that little kid likes me, how bad can I be? I felt it. It's not just that little kid that likes you, buddy. Scott does have his own podcast. He hasn't done anything on it for a year and a bit or so, but I am going to make a mention of it. It's called Monkey See, Monkey Review. And it's one of the reasons that Scott and I found each other because we were both on Twitter and it just so happened that we lived close to each other. So we became friends, but I absolutely adored Monkey See, Monkey Review. And I do hope they come back one day. I'll put some information in the show notes for his podcast. We also have a comment from Brett who says, for years, Hollywood couldn't figure out how to make a good video game movie. Wreck-It Ralph broke that mould and never looked back. This is not just one of my favourite Disney films, but one of my favourite films of all time. The adventure, the references, the voice cast and the beautiful animation are all amazing. It's truly a story of never judging a book by its cover and what would you do to change the stigma put on you. I love this movie so much and I'm so happy you're covering it. Me too, Brett. And Brent's podcast is called Dissect That Film. It's him and Dan and Angela. They do movie retrospectives, new releases. They also discuss TV shows as well. But it basically is dissecting that film. It's a great podcast. You should absolutely listen. I'll put information in the show notes for Dissect That Film too. Perennial commenter Andy returns yet again to say, Wreck-It Ralph is such a marvel of Disney animation. Not yet at the height of its powers as Frozen was still a year away, but a film that made audiences take notice. Not relying on the easy trope of just including classic video game Easter eggs, it takes the dichotomy of good guy, bad guy roles and flips it on its head. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that this was the start of Alan Tudyk taking on the same role that John Ratzenberger held with Pixar as the Disney animation constant. His Edwin-inspired King Candy is an absolute highlight. Also, check out the great Wreck-It Ralph song written by Buckner and Garcia, the same team that hit the charts in 1982 with Pac-Man Fever. And that is something that I did not know. So Buckner and Garcia, Pac-Man Fever, check it out on YouTube. Thank you, Andy, as always, for providing additional information for these episodes. And Andy is the host of the terrific podcast Geek Salad, the one-stop shop for all of your geeky podcast needs, whether that is movies, music, Video games, TV shows, literally anything and everything. It is available over at Geek Salad. I will put information in the show notes for his podcast. Moving over to Twitter, we're going to start with at Best Film Ever Pod, who said, A movie that legitimately makes me weep big ugly man tears every time I watch it. At first blush, what appears to be a fun little video game movie talks about depression and ambition, coming to grips with your own barometer about what it means to be good and what it means to be you. John C. Riley is no perfect as Ralph, while Jane Lynch, Jack McBrayer and Alan Tudyk are all brilliant in supporting roles. It comes off the track a bit with some modern day animated film flaws, licensed music over montages, the use of Shut Up and Drive is inappropriate for a film with its obvious innuendo, 
However, Ralph's final descent, realising that his sacrifice is for the greater good and coming to grips who he is in this world is Disney magic. He's a bad guy, but he's not a bad guy. At To My Heart said, A truly funny, unique and heartfelt movie. The real-world game references are fun without detracting from the original story and characters. The friendship of Ralph and Vanellope, romance of Felix and Calhoun and an exceptional villain all make this film well worth a watch. At TIAAD Media said, A silly kids movie full of heart and jam-packed with nostalgia and references for all the millennial and Gen X gamers in the audience. A lot of fun and well worth watching, though I have mixed feelings on the message. Explaining will take more than a tweet. And at Xenos Infinity said, Been a few years since I've watched it, but I remember genuinely enjoying it. Also makes me glad nobody has ever tried to hit me with my glasses. No comments on Instagram, but several on Facebook. So let's go through those. We're going to start with Tony, who says, Wreck-It Ralph is an amazing film. The fact that we were able to enjoy the idea that video game characters have lives within their game was brilliant. The voice cast was astonishing and perfect for who they portrayed. The villain oath is good affirmation for anyone. Kira said, I didn't grow up playing a lot of arcade or video games besides a few Atari games and a couple Nintendo games at friends' houses and church youth group, so some of the classic video game Easter eggs went over my head, but I still love this movie. I like the story of Ralph figuring out who he is inside of people's perception of him as a bad guy and realising that he is still an important part of his world. You are bad guy, but that does not mean you are bad guy. And Michelle says, Wreck-It Ralph was one of my favourite movies of that year. I lived in the arcade as a kid in the 80s, so this movie gave me all the feels. Also, an excellent soundtrack. And as always, thank you everyone for your comments on Wreck-It Ralph. And if you're listening and you want to comment read out in episodes, then the thoughts post, they go up on social media. So Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Verbal Diorama. Please give me a follow if you want to. If you comment on that post, usually they go up on a Friday, I will take your comment and I will read it out and I will also credit you in the episode as well. We usually lament long production delays on movies, thinking what they could have been like in their original raw form without studio interference. But Wreck-It Ralph only benefited from the extra time given to it. Had this movie been made in the 80s, it would have been a totally different beast coming out at a totally different time. But just in animation history, but also video game history. High Score and Joe Jump might have been cool, but they also would have been irrevocably different. Wreck-It Ralph could pay homage to all these different eras and genres of video games in a way that those never could have. It comes out of a unique period in Disney's history too. Two years after Tangle changed Disney's fortunes and gave a stunning CG with a hand-drawn quality to it, Ralph gives us 8-Bit Worlds, a dark modern first-person shooter, and Gaudi-influenced Sugar Rush, and each of these worlds feels real and unique. I especially love the little touches like the 8-bit Disney logo and the tradition from the 8-bit screen to the 3D world of Niceland. The worlds are inventive, original, and also reminiscent of what we know. Like Toy Story, we'll always wonder what the characters in the arcade machines are doing when it closes for the night. And when I say that, I mean the few arcades that are actually left out there. Through the cables plugged into an extension cord, which serves as a hub connecting all of the game cabinets, Characters can move between games using a clever subway system. The writers just exploited the premise of our new methods to employ components that are already well known to us in order to raise the stakes for the main and personal conflicts without having to develop a complicated structure for the control of this universe. Although the extension cord has far too many things plugged in and technically it is a fire hazard, but we'll let that slide too. 
But really what we're here for is Ralph. The hero's journey, his duty, or should that be duty, him his relationship with Vanellope. They connect over their shared hardships and experiences because they're both outcasts. Ralph is treated in a similar way by adults who mistreat him primarily by being polite to his face but going out of their way to exclude and ignore him. Whereas Vanellope is a child bullied outwardly and occasionally violently by other children who call her names and also adults who claim to have her best interests at heart. While Ralph is technically an adult and Vanellope a child, both are proof that bullying is ageless. Ralph has never been interested in or intended to visit Vanellope's game before because of its saccharine cutiness and Vanellope isn't able to leave it since she's a glitch. Therefore, neither one has any preconceived ideas about the other's place in their respective community. And this enables them to connect simply on the basis of who they are as people, without the prejudices against them playing a role in their friendship. And the result is an adorable chosen family. And the emotional conclusion is stronger since Vanellope's admission that Ralph is truly a bad guy occurs after she actually gets to know him as a person and after he just wrecked her cart, just like a bad guy would. The characterizations of this movie are so in-depth without having really any sort of exposition. You realize straight away that Ralph's anger is derived from his quote-unquote job and being mistreated at work. That Phoenix avoids conflict and therefore doesn't understand Ralph's difficulties or treatment by the Nicelanders. Vanellope's sharp tongue is a defense mechanism after years of being bullied and not understanding why she glitches. And Calhoun was given the most tragic of backstories and made to suffer that loss over and over again each time the game plays out. This movie also has a genius of a twist villain, one of the best that Disney had ever pulled off. Despite all of the clues being there and it being set up, it still works incredibly well on rewatch. His manipulation of Ralph pretending to care for Vanellope when he really just wants her to fail is a masterstroke. This movie teaches us to not judge a book by its cover, that even the biggest and ugliest bad guy could actually be a good guy deep down. But if you are a good guy, and I mean a really good guy, not turbo in disguise as King Candy, don't let other people define you. Break free of any stereotypes, break out of your comfort zone. But mostly this movie tells us to accept, embrace and celebrate difference. Difference is not a threat to the system. Difference is exactly what needs to be there. It's not a glitch. It's a superpower. And that's why at the end, Vanellope can still, quote unquote, glitch. It never was a glitch. King Candy just called it one. It was her superpower, her power-up, her special ability, her killer move. That's why she keeps it at the end. Because if you feel different, trust me, you are not a glitch. You're perfect, just as you are. Thank you for listening. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on Wreck-It Ralph. And if you have enjoyed this podcast, please get involved. Help this podcast grow. A few easy ways of doing that. You could leave a rating or review wherever you found this podcast. You can follow me on social media. I'm at Verbal Diorama. And you can retweet, like, comment on posts. That helps a lot too. Or you can simply tell your friends and family about this podcast. And if you like this episode on Wreck-It Ralph, you might also like the following episodes and movies. I've mentioned a couple of episodes in this episode already, but I wanted to go back to episode four, Who Frames Roger Rabbit? Mostly because I really do feel like if there were a spiritual successor to Who Frames Roger Rabbit, it probably would be Wreck-It Ralph. Who Frames Roger Rabbit is one of those movies that I think is truly timeless and truly a masterpiece of a movie. Now, the episode is a very old episode, so it probably doesn't sound very good. 
but it is an exceptional movie. I actually just did a guest spot on the Rewind Movie podcast all about Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And I will put actually a link to that episode in the show notes too, because we go in a huge amount of depth on the making of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And just what a brilliant movie that actually is. And I think a lot of people sleep on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but genuinely, it is a technical marvel of a movie. I'm also going to recommend episodes 50, 112, 143, and 144. And they are the Toy Story Quadrilogy. Now, I fully believe that the Toy Story Trilogy is one of the greatest trilogies ever made. I'm not the biggest fan of Toy Story 4, despite Duke Caboon, but Toy Story 1, 2, and 3 are genuinely one of the greatest trilogies ever made and those episodes are so well worth your time too and also episode 31 the lego movie again very similar to wreck it ralph in its setup including cameos from all of these well-known characters the lego movie is absolutely brilliant again it's one of those sleeper movies that i think a lot of people don't really remember but if you've not seen the lego movie in a while please go and watch it and please listen to that episode too as always, give me feedback on my recommendations. Next episode, I've been getting a lot of requests on social media. And the same request kept coming up and up all the time. And so it's about time that I actually listen. And basically, people were saying to me, play Yaya Ding Dong. Every time I released an episode, it was a comment saying, play Yaya Ding Dong. So I'm finally listening and I'm going to play Yaya Ding Dong to celebrate Eurovision. Now, if you don't know what Eurovision is, it's a very European thing. I believe it is being introduced into America now, but Eurovision is a song contest and it's a song contest that's been happening for over 60 years now. It's got a long and varied history in Europe. And this year's Eurovision Song Contest is being held here in the UK, in Liverpool, in lieu of it not being able to be held in the winning country. The country that won last year was Ukraine. And obviously, we all still stand with Ukraine. We support Ukraine. But because of the ongoing war, they cannot hold the contest. They're second place. We are holding the contest on behalf of Ukraine. And because we are holding the contest on behalf of Ukraine, I wanted to celebrate Eurovision and do an episode on Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga, which was the movie that came out in 2020, starring Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams. And basically... Tell you all about the history of Eurovision because it is an absolutely fascinating contest. If you don't know about Eurovision, then hopefully you will learn something about Eurovision. It's coming out a couple of days before the Eurovision Song Contest, so just to get the SEO numbers up. But I really wanted to talk about Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga. And doing it the week of Eurovision was just the ideal opportunity. So please join me next week as I talk about the story of Fire Saga. Now, just by listening to this podcast, you are supporting this podcast. And I always say this podcast is free and it always will be free. You do not have to pay for this podcast at all. But if you do want to support this podcast financially, you can do so at verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. And you can join the amazing patrons of Verbal Diorama. They are Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Vern, Kat, Andy, Mike, Luke, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Sam, Jack. Dave, Chris, Stuart, Sonny, Drew, Nicholas, Zoe, Kev, Pete, Heather, Danny, Ali, Tyler, Stu, Brett, Philip, and welcome brand new patron Michelle to this wonderfully colourful video game world that is Verbal Diorama. 
Michelle, I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you so much for your support. You know, you are one dynamite gal. In fact, to all the patrons, you are one dynamite gal. Dynamite gal. Dynamite gal. Dynamite gal. Dynamite gal. You can check out my merch store. It's at verbaldiorama.com slash merch. New merch designs, they are coming. I know I keep saying that, but they are. You can get in touch with me by emailing verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can also say hi, give feedback or suggestions at verbaldiorama.com. And you can also find my work at filmstories.co.uk. You can find issues of the magazine that I write here and also the articles that I write every week as well. And finally... Penelope! Look at that, it's his little friend. Let's watch her die together, shall we? No! (laughs) It's game over for both of you. No. Just for me. Penelope! Together, we can make a difference. That's been the sign-off for everything Livestream for the Cure related ever since the event began back in 2017. Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I am the host of the Livestream for the Cure, an annual charity event to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute for immunotherapy research for a world immune to cancer. And over the past six years, we've made that difference together. Amazing listeners, amazing viewers, amazing podcast partners and content creators all coming together, and we've raised over $70,000. But this year, we're going to make our biggest difference to date, and we're going to raise $25,000 for the Cancer Research Institute. Tune into the event at twitch.tv slash livestream for the cure starting May 18th, as we're joined again by podcast partners and content creators from around the world to help the Cancer Research Institute crush cancer. Together, we will make a difference.